Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's where the shapers of business meet the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Louise McGuan, founder of the Chapelgate Irish Whiskey Company. Growing up on her family farm in Ireland, Louise almost joined the army, having spent two years in the reserves. But after university, a chance meeting launched a career in the drinks industry. For two decades, she says, I worked and learned from some of the best in global multinational drinks companies Diageo, Pono Ricard and Moet Hennessy. I know the drinks industry inside out and it truly is my passion. After marrying her husband in 2012, Louise made the tough decision to leave a career reliant on travelling and while watching her 74-year-old parents work in the farm as they'd always done, she says she felt a duty to secure the future of their land. Inspiration came when Louise learnt of a 19th century whisky bonder, J.J. Corey, from her home county. She decided to bring back the lost art of whisky bonding, a piece of heritage from her community, as she says. We'll be chatting to Louise very shortly about a Kickstarter campaign, about global distribution and Louise's views on luck and effort. We've also got brilliant music today from, amongst others, Sonny Rollins, Bill Lawrence and Nina Simone. That is today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Etta James with Something's Got a Hold on Me. Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. No, no. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now that uh, I believe, I really do believe that that was Etta James with Something's Got a Hold on Me. Louise McGuan is my business shaper as billed earlier. She is the founder of the Chapelgate Whiskey Company. And I must admit, uh, I have to declare an interest, I've tasted it. I've tasted the Gale. Is that how you the say Gale, it? Gale, JJ Corey the Gale. JJ Corey the yep. Gale. She's saying to me, Elliot, you fool. You can't even <laughs> say it properly just because it's got an A and an E in it doesn't mean it's a weird word. It's really lovely to see you. You too. Great to be here. I love um, not being a farmer, being a man, a man from Stanmore, which is in northwest London, the end of the Jubilee line, Louise. I'm always fascinated by people that have been brought up in that world and then they come back to it. So just tell me a little bit about the day you went, you know what, I'm not going to be doing this corporate thing anymore because I mentioned earlier you were, you were a proper hardcore corporate person, executive, flying around the world, being awfully important with great titles. You said no. I'm going to go back to the land, I'm going to do something else. When did that happen, if indeed it happened in one moment? I think it did happen in one moment, actually. So I had 20-odd years of major multinational corporate life, essentially. And um, I think I didn't, when I grew up on the farm, I probably didn't realise that I was an entrepreneur the entire time because I'd never seen an entrepreneur. It wasn't in common parlance back then. Um, but every corporation that I worked in, I looking back on it now, I can see I was very entrepreneurial. And so I would be given a project and just told to go away and sort of make it happen. And then I would take that project and blow it up. But I would do that in a very entrepreneurial way, which sometimes means not playing the corporate game and just 
um, not necessarily working within the confines of a corporate culture, you know, just sort of making stuff happen regardless, as opposed to doing it in a particular kind of corporate way. So I did that in every corporation I was in, probably. And I ran massive, you know, huge, big budget projects, and I got a lot of stuff done, but I perhaps didn't really fit into the corporate mold. But I worked really, really, really hard. And I think the moment I realized that oh, I can't do this anymore was something to do with maybe a bit of like cumulative 20 years of being a square peg in a round hole. And also, I think I came back from a particular grueling business trip for about, I think I was on the road for seven weeks in, t in total, from Singapore to Brazil to the US and London and back to Singapore and maybe somewhere in between. And my boss uh, called me up and gave me a very serious dressing down, uh, a very demoralizing dressing down for having a meeting with somebody that he had wanted to meet. And, you know, looking back on it it, it, it was, you know, it came from the wrong place in his perspective. It was just kind of him playing a corporate role and, and trying to work within the confines of a, of a corporate structure. And I sort of realized that, you know, no matter how hard I ever worked, if I didn't fit in, you know, or, or conform to the exact corporate structure um, that I was working with, within, I was never going to get anywhere. And I kind of made a decision in that split second that I didn't want to do that anymore. You know, I'd been trying to do it for 20 years. So that was probably the, the spark that, that got me thinking about setting up my own business. And very briefly, from that moment when the spark happened to actually starting the new business, what was the gestation period, roughly? It was a couple of months. So after I'd had that conversation on the phone, kind of compound all of this, you know, I was living in Singapore and I was, my husband was living in London and I was making all of these sacrifices for the business to, to, to be in this international posting and be away from my new, you know, my, what my then new husband. So it was kind of compounded. And I said, I'm booking a holiday. I booked a holiday and I went to Thailand, I think, or maybe Indonesia, I can't remember. And I sat on a beach and I wrote a business plan and then I handed in my notice and I was out of there in terms of including the notice a couple of months. Wow. That's called making a decision rather quickly. And that is why Louise McGowan is my business shaper here today talking to me. She's the founder of the Chapelgate Whiskey Company. And you're going to be finding out lots more about the woman from the farm that has gone global and then come back home in a way. But much more of that shortly. Time for music right now. It's Sonny Rollins with St. Thomas. <laughs> That was Sonny Rollins with St. Thomas, my business shape today is Louise McGuan. I hope I'm saying it correctly. She's the founder of the Chapelgate Irish Whiskey Company. I'm looking sometimes at my notes about Chapelgate because I think of it as this bottle in my in my office, I must admit, of J.J. Corey and the Gale, as, as you said. So you, you made the decision. Two months, you wrote the plan on the beach. Did you need at that point funding? Did you need external capital to get things going? And where does one start when one wants to start making whiskey? I mean, that's quite a big thing, isn't it? So whiskey is one of the more capital-intensive consumer products that you can make. And it's, it's capital-intensive for a number of reasons. There's two routes to, to, to make whiskey. You either invest a huge amount of capex into a production facility, um, which can run you anything from, you know, a million to 25 million, how long was a piece of string. Um, the issue then comes with whiskey, specifically Irish and Scotch whiskey, you can't sell it immediately like gin or vodka. You are legally obliged to wait several years, a minimum of three years, before you can actually bring it to market. 
So there's always going to be a lag time between you investing in your your plant and your and your stock and actually being able to sell. So I knew immediately, yes, this is this is a hugely capital intensive business, no matter what business model I choose. So I'm going to have to go out and raise money. And, you know, I think it's pretty common. People know that, you know, raising money is hard, no matter what kind of business you have. It's, it's particularly hard. It's even harder, I think, if you're a woman. That's just statistically very, very well proven. Uh, so I knew, you know, I had to go out there and, and just sort of make that happen. Um, but I, the first thing I needed to do was prove my business case, if you like. So professionally, I had enough experience behind you and enough knowledge within the industry. You know, people would back me as a horse, let's just say, or as a jockey. But I had to prove that the business model and the story that I had and the product that I was going to bring to market was worth a punt. Uh, so back in that, in those days, I decided I would, I needed kind of a proof of concept, quite frankly. I knew I had a really strong story in J.J. Corey. You know, he was an actual whiskey bonder in my local town in the 1800s. Uh, it was an old business model and a, a piece of Irish whiskey heritage that had been lost. Um, so there was a really good authenticity to the brand that I was building and the story I was building around that brand. I knew I could call on my friends in the in the drinks industry, in the whiskey industry, to, to help me to create a really good qualitative whiskey. So I knew I could do it, but I had to prove it. So back then, uh, crowdfunding, unlike today, like it was, it was actually quite a new concept. So uh, Kickstarter and you know the other various different consumer crowdfunding platforms were really coming to the fore. So I decided I'd try that. Uh, I looked at some some projects that were similar to mine that were that had succeeded on Kickstarter, and I set my target. I think at about fifty thousand dollars or euros or something. And I said, the, the thinking was, can I get people to part with cash just based on a story I can tell on um, Kickstarter? And what would they get for the cash? So it, it, so it's a non-equity fundraise, right? So they would get things like a hat with JJ Corey written on it, or um, you could get a barrel of whiskey, for example, that you could come and visit, and you could come and stay at our house. We have this beautiful guest house on the farm that's that, that has won all these awards for design and stuff. It's this amazing space to stay. They can come and stay there for a weekend, or it, it was down as simple as like you can you can name a cow on the farm. So it was really tiny little cute things ranging in price from five actually 250 all the way up to like 4,000. This is when you know you're talking to an entrepreneur because basically they just make stuff up. They say to me, you know what, we could we could name a cow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's going to get people interested. And lo and behold, how much did you raise? Well, well, we, first of all, we sold 60 of those cow things. I, would, I just want to say. The cows. Did you ask the cows if the they cows could be called? Fine. I bet you didn't. <laughs> they, 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 weren't, they, weren't, they weren't asked, were they? Well, they don't answer to their names anyway, so they don't <laughs> care. So, But they've, they've been named. So go on, give me the money because I want to play some more music, uh, more music in a moment. But give me, give me the, the amount you actually raised. Yeah, so we exceeded, the, we exceeded the target pretty much immediately within the first like 10 or 15 days of the, of the raise. It was a 30-day raise. And I think in the end, we got it was close to like 68, 70,000 that we raised. So, and then we shut the fund down kind of immediately. But yeah, we were the first ever Irish whiskey, whiskey company to successfully crowdfund. That proved the concept and it allowed me to attract angel investment. The modern and traditional being synthesized perfectly or blended, I should say, perfectly. Louise McGowan's my business shaper. Lots more coming up from her very shortly. But first, we're going to hear from one of our program partners at Mishkon Dere, some words of advice for your business. I'm Daniel Farrand. I'm an associate in the planning group at Mishkondorea, part of the wider real estate department. One thing I see quite a lot of in terms of small business is queries about their accommodation. When you're setting up a small business, um, you, may need, you may even be starting from home. Now, a home 
obviously has planning permission to be a, uh, a residential dwelling. Uh, so the planning system doesn't really work very well with mixes of uses or innovative uses. Local authorities tend to be fairly stick in the mud. So sometimes they can take some convincing that business activities from a home are merely ancillary to the residential use of the property, especially if you're starting to bring employees in, if your business is growing. As a result, uh, people starting a new business or developing and growing their business need to think very carefully about the kind of space they want to occupy and the kind of uses they want to undertake. It's always better to work that out in the first place. Try and find a business premises that suits you, or at least to address the issue with the local planning authority. The worst case scenario is an enforcement notice that can even prevent you running your business from your premises because it doesn't fit with the proper planning designation of that building. Uh, we've helped a lot of clients avoid that situation or defend themselves uh, in the unfortunate event that it happens. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed hear this programme again with Louise by popping Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Alternatively, you can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll find many of the recent programmes. But back to today, Louise McGon is my business shaper, founder of the Chapelgate Irish Whiskey Company and you've been hearing about what I would call chutzpah and I don't know, I love the, all the different things what Louise would call, I'm not sure what you would call chutzpah in... Uh, from in Ireland, what, what was Probably one? Probably too rude to. Yes, say don't say that. Yes, there's a tendency to be rude, as <laughs> uh, Louise. But or there'll be a, a jockey or a horse thrown in there or something. You, you were off to the races, as you as you said. Once you got this money under your belt, you got your first batch out. How soon afterwards? Now that took a, 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 a while. while longer. That took a while longer. Yeah, because um, we went out and we we had that. We had funds in the bank, certainly, to now purchase whiskey and then to purchase uh, casks in, in which to put it. But then I had to source the whiskey. And I came up against a bit of a brick wall there, to be honest with you, because the, the Irish whiskey industry is, it's old school, is, is mm. how I would describe it. You know, it's been run by the same four or five organizations for certainly my entire lifetime. So I was a newcomer coming in. Um, uh, nobody knew who I was in terms of within the, within the sphere of Irish whiskey within Ireland. So nobody took me seriously, to be frank, at the beginning. So I had to kind of convince people that I had all of this money in the bank and that I, I wanted to buy their whiskey for it from them. And that took a lot of relationship building and it took a lot of sort of proving my case and, and proving what I was capable of and all the rest of it. How long did that take, Louis, um, for you to actually secure the, the, the whiskey itself? Well, it took about six months. It should have mm. taken five minutes, you know, but it, it, it took six but, months. So was it, I mean, A, obviously, do you think it was sexist? I'm imagining you do. B, I imagine that it's a, it's, a, it's a cartel in a way, so people don't like being broken into. But how did you then, I mean, all you were asking for is sell, sell me your whiskey. I mean, you have money, give me your whiskey. And why would they not? It's the, both of the things that you mentioned there. You know, um, it is a bit of cartel is a strong word, but yeah. it's not far off. But but it, 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 there's just there's not many people you can go to, to to purchase whiskey from, and a lot of people would not sell whiskey to me. They just refused. My business model was very different. I was um, I was very vocal all the time on social media within the whiskey sphere about things that needed to change and and the progress that the industry needs to make to make it more relevant to, to whiskey consumers globally. Because the Irish whiskey industry had been really stuck in the past and was making one or two kinds of whiskey, lower end kind of whiskeys, just like banging them out. So maybe I'd built a bit of a reputation for advocating for change and people didn't like that, quite frankly. Did you do that because you, I mean, obviously you believed it to a point, but did you also know that would be differentiating because you're a marketing 
person, you'd understand that. Was there a, stra- a, a madness to your, to your strategy? Or rather, sorry, a method and a madness. Was there a method to your madness, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. There was. like so, so, well, first of all, it's coming from a very authentic place because I believe every single thing that I'm saying. And I knew what I was saying was going to be controversial. And I said it anyway, because, of course, people are going to pay attention to it. And you're going to stand out from the crowd. And, you know, I'm willing. I don't care about taking knocks on social media. And I don't really care if people think... I'm too big for my boots within the industry or whatever. It's irrelevant to me. Like, I know what I'm capable of, so I'm just going to go out and do it anyway. And it's really worked to to our advantage. You know, we are one of the most visible Irish whiskey comedies within the category now. Certainly one of the most, the, the newer, of the newer te- newer crowd mm. and the independence. You know, people, you know, look to us for, for opinions on the industry and people know J.J. Corey largely because of the fact that I'm out there telling my truth and, and being authentic about how I think the industry should change. May I ask, where, where did you get your inner confidence from? Because you're a very naturally strong person. I mean, whether there's, you know, when it's late at night and you're worrying about the 84 things that you've got to worry about, maybe you're a, you're a different Louise. I'm sure you are. We all are. But not everyone can project such a level of, uh, of inner belief. Where do you think that you got that from? Is that a parental thing? Um, it's, yeah, it's probably a, a parental thing. I honestly, I think it's just a life thing. You know, I had, I, I probably didn't have this level of it at, in a corporation because I felt pulled in many directions and I was trying to make too many people happy and I was worried about what other people think. I honestly think that once I became an entrepreneur, I was freed from all of that and, and I felt confident enough to just, to just express how I felt about things because I believe in myself. I believe in my background, you know. If I'm wrong, I'll always admit it and say it. I take accountability for for what I'm wrong about, but um, it just it just is just part of me, I guess. And I think you need it as an entrepreneur. And today, how many bottles of your lovely JJ Corey are you selling across the different strands, the different variants? Yeah, so, so we um, so we've really only been on the market we for three years now. Yeah, three years really. We've, we we hit the market um, maybe two and a half really. We're exporting to the United States. We're exporting all over Europe here in the UK. We've opened up Asia um, and what we've, the, the model has evolved into sort of a lower volume, higher margin model. So we have gone very squarely for the ultra premium and sort of luxury sector. So our volumes are not huge, but our gross margins are. What's that one over there? She's, uh, Louise has bought, bought a present for somebody. Yeah, We're this one. Fight. Stuart and I will be fighting later. Yeah, th- this is a very, this is kind of an in- indicative of what we do. This is a very small batch called the the Banner Blend. Um, we do really, really small batches, you know, 120 cases or 300 bottles for very sort of unique clients. This one we re- launched in the summer. This is exclusively available in County Clare. You can only purchase this in County Clare, where we're from. I made it available to some local um, shop owners uh, who've been very supportive of us. And when we launched this on social media last summer, there were people driving from all over the country to queuing up outside the shop to purchase it. We had people from Boston sending people to drive down from Dublin to pick it up for us. And it's sold out in three and a half hours. And that's kind of, it's very low, low volume for us. Um, that retails for, for, I think, about 80. Um, that's kind of our, our sort of sweet spot and we go up from there. But everything we do is small and um, low volume, high margin, but it sells out very, very quickly. And it might be coming home with me. We'll soon see. <laughs> it's a collector's item, that one. Oh, good. But I'm allowed to drink it as well. <laughs> mm, not so Have a sure. look on the auction sites and see where the price is, yeah. Good Lord. Now now everyone's <laughs> smiling in here. Uh, stay with me for my business shape today. That's Louise McGuan, and she's the founder of the Chapel Gate Irish Whiskey Company. Time for some more music right now. That's Bill Lawrence with Swag Times. 
That was Bill Lawrence with Swag Times. Louise McGuan is my business shaper. We've been talking about uh, being confident, saying what you need to say rather than worrying about things because that's what happens when you leave the corporate environment. You can just let go. Take the handbrake off. Here we are now a few years in and the, the business is growing. You've got some investment. You've got people that are working for you. It's an entity. This is no longer the thing that Louise had in her head on the beach. This is now real. Do you feel differently or do you feel just as liberated as you did those five years ago? I feel just as liberated. This year is, a, is is going to be a year of change for us, I think. You know, we've just closed a round of funding, which allows us to get to the next stage of growth, essentially. The business model has evolved a little bit and we're in a period of acquisition in terms of, you know, whiskey again this year and we're staffing up a little bit. So it's starting to feel, you know, it, it began with me in a converted cow shed on the farm, just alone for a very, very long period of time. And now we have people on board. We have, as you say, it's, it's an entity. It's a business now. Mm. But I still feel, I feel far better than I ever did in a corporation, I think. You know, I, I could never go back now. I could never, you know, do what I used to do. But it just brings different pressures with it. You know, as, as, as you grow and you bring people on, there's, a, there's an onus now to the people who work for me as well. That there's a responsibility to them. And the business itself is just a much bigger beast and, and has to be looked after in, in a much more strategic mm. you know, way. And things have to get a little, a little tighter internally. And I have to start acting a little bit more in terms of organizational stuff as, as I did back in my corporate days. You well, it's, I mean, you've got the supply chain stuff. You've actually got when's the whiskey coming. You've got the casks. You've got to make sure that the temperature's right. There's a, the production itself. There's the sales piece. There's the marketing piece. There's the HR piece as, as numbers of people creep in. Where, where is your, your comfort zone? And where, where are the areas which are not comfortable for you? And what have you done about the areas which are not comfortable? My comfort zone is uh, the marketing piece. I'm very comfortable in that area. I'm very comfortable in the, the sales and commerciality and sales of it. Production has been difficult for us, to be honest with you, and it's it's difficult for everybody. Everybody in the industry that I speak speak to, it's difficult. There's a lot of bureaucracy uh, around production in alcohol in particular. And if you're not hyper on top of that, it can get really kind of sticky for you. Have you got someone that does that? I do now. Mm. Yeah, so we have a production manager on site now. So they're, so they're dealing with all of that. You know, being responsible for other people, I really take that very seriously. I take it very seriously in terms of their career development during the time that they're with us, quite frankly, and also the experience that they have while they're with us. So for me, I, I that's something that, you know, I think long, long and hard about, and I'm getting more comfortable with that. Um, but the only sort of non-comfortable piece for me was that the, the bureaucracy piece and dancing to the tune of the various governmental bodies, but we've solved that. And in terms of the bureaucracy that creeps into all these things, have you, again, with your corporate hat on, have you gone, there's a better way of doing that? Or have you had a different realisation, which is every business has this kind of stuff to deal with? It's the latter. Everybody has to deal with it. You know, I fought it for a long time. You know, I, I, I was being hyper entrepreneurial about it and thinking I could find a workaround and a do-over and a, and a way through. And that didn't last very long. So, you know, I, I lost that battle. You know, there, there's sometimes you just have to, you have to put your own entrepreneurial, get it done, bull and china shop way in, in a box. And when it comes to dealing with governmental agencies and bureaucracy and uh, around a product as highly legislated as alcohol, you just have to do it by the book. Stay with me for my final chat with Louise McGowan. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Nina Simone. That's all coming up in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.
That was Nina Simone with the brilliant African Mailman. Louise McGuan is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. We've spoken about being a, a, a woman in business and, a, and an entrepreneur um, and raising capital and how difficult it is. And I've had a number of people on and we've talked about it. As you said, the stats speak for themselves. Looking back now and looking forwards, does that disappear once there's a little bit of success under your belt? Do people become inherently less sexist? In other words, they just start saying, well, that person who happens to be a woman is backable. Or is it the same old stuff? I think it's the same old stuff. So people invest in people that they can relate to. And, you know, the majority of my investors are men. God bless them. And uh, they've, they, they, they happen to see beyond, you know, my, my gender, quite frankly. But I think, you know, there's going to come a point that we're going to go into sort of probably institutional investment and much, much bigger scale. You know, at the moment we have, it's not friends and family, it's Series A, but there will come a point where I'll be sitting in front of either VCs or big institutional investors. And I just know it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be similar. Um, that's going to change eventually. But but what I always say to everybody is, is that that is the reality of the world that we currently live in. Uh, I, as an individual female founder, am not going to change that. I don't think it'll change by the time I've finished work. I think the next generation might have that advantage. But until you have more women in VCs, until you have more women like at institutional investment organizations, it's just not going to change. So you just have to work around it, you know? Is there a lot to learn about as you get bigger and the, the, the investors get bigger and the amounts get bigger? Is it just common sense or have you gone or have you had to have external advice saying, listen, this is how we're going to approach it? And, in, and if you have done that, the kind of advisors you have, does it matter whether they're men or women to you at all? No, I couldn't care less who they are. Uh, but I, have, I, know I, need, I know I need it. Uh, I, that is not, and, and, you know, starting this business, it wasn't even something I massively thought about, you know, fundraising in, in terms of when you're getting to bigger numbers. But I very quickly realized this is not something I have a skill set for. I, I have no background in this. I have no experience in this. There's different language involved. You have to also protect yourself as a founder as well. There's so many elements that are involved in that you have to get advice. And I couldn't care less who's giving me that advice as long as they know what they're doing and they're, they're beside me for, for that particular ride. And is the vision for you to grow this into a global business, is it, is it going to be in you know five years, 10 years' time, the number one whiskey coming out of Ireland? Or is it? Is there something else that's driving you? It won't be the number one whiskey. It can't be because no. I can't go up against, you know, the six million cases of Jemison or whatever. That's not it. But we're, I, I want to be the, the we're, we're, right now we're a global small business. Like that's what I was aiming for. That was kind of step one. But award winning. I mean, you're An being award fated for the taste. Yes. Which I like, can testify to. Yeah. Whiskey people, you know, we the whiskey Lovers love us and, and, you know, we're on a path now to the next stage of growth, which is becoming a bigger consumer-facing brand rather just a, than just a whiskey connoisseur-facing brand. Can I quickly ask, so I'm interrupting you on, on this just because it's important, how did you know it would, what good whiskey would taste like, apart from the, your own taste buds? Was there, a, was there a group of people advising you on what this should be like and the viscosity of it and the, the way the blend works and so on? Because it's a pretty exact science, isn't it? Yes, so that is not my skill set. And, and again, for me, you, you got to surround your, yourself with people who are better than certain things than you are. It's vital to the success of my business. So I work with a nose to, whose, whose sole job and sole duty is to create and curate flavors into our whiskies, essentially. And that's a specialist skill. That's a very hyper-specialist skill. So I work with a nose in order to help us that. I'll define the commerciality of it. And I'll say we need a super juicy, fruity fruit bomb Irish whiskey. And then um, the, the nose, the nose comes in. Where does the nose live? In the UK. 
And 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 was the nose part of the Kickstarter campaign? I don't think it was. No, 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 no. The nose no. was not for sale. The nose, the, no, the nose. No. We, we don't, we don't, we don't talk too much about the nose because the nose is like an industry person who works for who has to remain autonomous because they nose for a lot of people. <laughs> I love this notion. I want to meet. Can I just say one day I want to meet the nose? But you obviously would be like this. someday, someday. But have a, he'll have a helmet on his head, and we won't know who he is, and a black visor. Listen, could be a woman. Could it be could a be a woman. woman. That's true. Woman. That's true. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Very good point. Thank you for correcting me, um, Louise. It's been lovely talking to you, um, and really good luck with it. The taste is phenomenal. I know I'm now sounding biased, but it's just I, I enjoyed the gale, and I've, I'm looking at this Banner County blend. Um, and I'm going, wow, I can't wait for a bit of that, maybe um, at some point this evening. Just before I let you go, though, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? My song choice is Miles Davis' So What? I left Ireland in 1990, a long time ago. <laughs> and, you know, I literally left and I went to go and work in, in the United States. I was working in Boston and I had a roommate who had a record player. And he put um, Kind of Blue on on a Sunday morning after, you know, we, we were, I, I got up out of bed and I had never in my life heard a jazz record ever before, really. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what is this? This is amazing. And then that took me down sort of like a five-year path, really, of Miles Davis and Dave Brubeck and all of those guys. And it was the first record I ever heard. And I, I still play it now on Sunday mornings when I wake up. That was So What from Miles Davis, the song choice of my business shaper today, Louise McGuan. She was driven, really focused, had huge self-belief and has been absolutely liberated by becoming an entrepreneur after 20 years in the corporate world. Really good stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a super week. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.